Hello and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, St. Luke's weekly podcast where we learn together, preparing ourselves to live in community, to love God through worship, and to lead our lives as disciples. I'm Pastor Melissa, and I am so excited to be with you this week. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark as we have been doing all year long, and we find ourselves in the second week of Lent in Mark chapter 11. So let's get started. The people were amazed by his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority, not like the legal experts. This quote comes not from the chapter we're in, which is Mark 11, but from the very first chapter of Mark, where we see Jesus introduced through his baptism, his tempting in the wilderness, his calling of disciples, his teaching in the synagogue, his casting out of demons, his healing And a theme that began at the opening of Mark's account, right here in chapter one, really hits a turning point in this week's chapter of Mark 11. And it's the theme of Jesus' authority. Now, you might say all of those things that you listed from Mark 1, um, they really set the tone for understanding Jesus' authority. And you'd be right. (laughs) And yet, Mark uses this next part of the story to really drive home a message he's been pointing us toward all along. Where exactly does Jesus' authority come from, and what kind of authority is it? So let's jump into today's text, Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now, if you have a Bible or Bible app, you can read along with me. I'll be reading mostly from the Common English Version. It says, When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, Go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, its master needs it, and he will send it back right away. They went and found a colt tied to a gate outside on the street, and they untied it. Some people standing around said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them just what Jesus said, and they left them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes upon it, and he sat on it. Many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after he looked around at everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. Now, you might be surprised when you read this week's chapter because we aren't used to this story coming during the second week of Lent. We're used to it being read at the beginning of Holy Week on Palm or Passion Sunday. But our pattern of weekly reading brings us to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem this week. We see a story that occurs here in all four Gospels in some way, although the details differ. Here in Mark's account, Jesus sends a pair of disciples to go and retrieve an unbroken colt for him. He gives details as to what they will encounter, and it happens just as he says. It's on this colt that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as people put branches and clothing on the road for him to ride on. The people all around him are shouting praises as they all enter the city together. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this story is so familiar because we tell a version of it every year. And each year, many of us grew up as kids processing around our sanctuaries, waving palms and shouting, Hosanna, whether we understood the significance of it or not. 
And yet, so often we do miss the context that helps us recognize the significance. On the surface, we see this triumphal entry of the Messiah. But we see Jesus as the Messiah because we know the rest of the story, as would have Mark's first century hearers as well. But for those who are in the narrative, they don't yet have this information. In fact, it would be easy to read more into their shouts of acclamation than is really there in the text. You see, nowhere in Mark's account do they declare that Jesus is the coming Messiah. They don't name him specifically as the new David. They do praise the, quote, one who comes in the name of the Lord, and they shout for joy for the return of David's kingdom, but there is not a specific messianic message in their words. You know, this is not the great welcome into Jerusalem as it's often portrayed either. You see, those who are shouting praises are pilgrims themselves. They're coming into the city for Passover. They're not there for Jesus. Jesus is among them. They're all part of the same pilgrimage group entering the city. In fact, this triumphal entry happens on the road to the city, not in the city itself. I, I always see it as Jerusalem Main Street, that, that they're lining the roads, but this is actually the, the, the road leading into the city. But even knowing that, we do see the symbols that point us in the direction that, that our experience takes us, seeing this royal messianic figure coming in. This triumphal entry, Jesus um, uh, shows us symbols that point us in that direction. Mark does, I mean. We see Jesus riding into the city rather than walking. Um, your average pilgrim would have been walking. And we also see this unbroken cult, this idea of ritual purity with even his steed that signifies a royal rider. Now, the cult itself is a sign from folklore that does signify Jesus as an authority figure here. Often, Roman soldiers would requisition either animal or human labor, and they would have to be given it um, in the same way that Jesus does. In addition, Jewish readers would know the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, that the king would come riding to them on a donkey. We also see another royal reference in the spreading of the crowd's cloaks on the road. It's reminiscent of Jehu's accession to the throne that we read about in 2 Kings 9 as well. All in all, first century readers and hearers would have recognized this concept of triumphal entry, the signifying, a claiming of authority in this space. They had historical comparisons, like connecting this entry into Jerusalem with a coup led by Simon Bar Giora, who drove Eliezer and his faction from the temple. Or those who lived in Rome might have even been witnesses of the triumphal procession when Vespasian celebrated defeating the Jews. Processing like this into Jerusalem would have meant something to Mark's readers, more than just a simple Passover pilgrimage. Jesus was set up in Mark's account to be seen as an authority figure who was about to do something significant, even kingly. But this is an odd turn for Mark's gospel, because until now, Mark's account of Jesus' authority has been defined by his messianic secret. Jesus has insisted that there was no public announcement of his messiahship, of his authority, of his power, of his divinity. And yet here in this week before Passover, he enters grandly and publicly into Jerusalem, allowing the crowds around him to shout acclamation. And yet, because we know the whole story, we also know that he won't be the kind of messiah that they want or expect. 
And we do start to get some signs of this, even in the midst of where we see these royal, grand, triumphal um, entry moments. We already start to see nuances that tell us Jesus is going to be different. You see, where Roman soldiers would have demanded an animal in the same way, Jesus says, I'm going to return it. Riding a colt would have signified royalty, but a colt or donkey would have been the steed of choice when a royal leader wished to signify that they had peaceful intentions. So Jesus' entry on a donkey shows that he is coming in peace, not to conquer. And we see Jesus' acquisition of his steed happening just as he says, with no conflict and no force. Seems that there is a greater authority at work beyond the power of the earthly authorities. And it's an authority that Jesus seems to be in special connection with. Jesus enters in both a completely royal and kingly manner, and yet at the same time in a peaceful and humble one as well. As one commentator put it, Jesus enters as the lowly one, hero only to a motley rabble, but he's ironically more of a king than they think. Just maybe not the king that they think they're looking for. This section of the chapter ends with a real anticlimax. After a grand pilgrimage entry into Jerusalem, Jesus goes into the temple and leaves. And then he leaves Jerusalem again. All of that for him to walk in, look around, and just leave the city again. This part of Mark's account is really odd, but as our friend Dr. E.B. Arnold tells us, part of the reason is that Mark can never resist a sandwich which is what we get in the rest of this chapter. We get a series of stories that, that, that stack upon one another so that we can understand what's in the middle by what's around it. You see, in the other synoptic gospels, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is followed immediately by his cleansing of the temple. You know, that moment where he turns over tables, he's got a whip, he's really letting them have it. But Mark wants to set us up to really understand that encounter before he tells us about it. So first, we get a story that begins to seem like a really unusual interlude. It starts with, with uh, verse 12. It says, the next day after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. From far away, he noticed a fig tree and leaf. So he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing except leaves, since it wasn't the season for figs. So he said to it, no one will ever again eat your fruit. And his disciples heard this. So Jesus is hangry and he yells at a tree. <laughs> I mean, if you just take it by itself, that's the story. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. It has no figs on it, which it shouldn't have because it was out of season. And he gets mad and yells a curse at it. We are going to leave this here for a moment because if we try to figure this one out on its own, we are going to be here for a long time. We're going to continue, um, and, and we're going to see that Jesus makes his way back to Jerusalem. This time with no grand entry, he just walks back in with the disciples, and now he goes back to the temple for a more significant encounter. It says, they came to Jerusalem. This starts with verse 15, if you're following along. They came into Jerusalem, and after entering the temple, he threw out those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency. Uh, for currency exchange, and the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He taught them, hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, 
but you've turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him. They regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. When it was evening, Jesus and his disciples went outside the city. So here we get that story that we do all love as a reminder sometimes, that one that makes us feel better when we just want to throw a chair and a table. (laughs) So first, let's set the scene of what Jesus was walking into. So knowing that this was approaching Passover, the leaders of the temple would have prepared for many pilgrims to be coming into the city. Josephus actually gives us accounts that it could have been as many as three million people entering during this time. And part of the ritual there at the temple would have been sacrifice. And with pilgrims traveling from far away, many of them, especially the poorest, would not have been able to bring with them their animal sacrifices. So there in the temple, there were vendors ready to sell these pilgrims their sacrificial animals like doves. There also would have had to be some currency exchange going on as well. The coins of many of the travelers would have had pagan or imperial images on them. And these were in violation of the commandment against graven images. And so there were also vendors there willing to exchange these coins for specifically minted coins to be given as an offering to the temple treasury. And if we want to see a moment of the exercise of Jesus' authority, it happens right here. (laughs) He immediately throws out those vendors and money changers. And he then prevents anyone from carrying anything throughout the temple, which seems odd. And there are a couple of different meanings associated with this instruction. But what it makes clear is that not only is he offering protest through turning over of tables, but he's also taking charge. He's taking authority over what's happening within the temple as well. How money is used, how people move about. We actually see more controversy around coinage in chapter 12 related to taxes and a widow's offering. Jesus makes it clear here that the temple is being misused, that the issue is not the temple itself, but its leaders. And those leaders get the message loud and clear. They recognize he's not attacking the temple, but their way of running it, their leadership, their teaching, they know they are being attacked. And yet we hear that the crowds are astonished. It's important to take note of that. It comes back up. And then Jesus leaves the city again. He is back and forth and back and forth into and out of Jerusalem. For what a triumphal entry he started with. He sure does leave a lot. (laughs) But this is the moment where we get the other piece of bread in Mark's sandwich. We see our poor fig tree again. And only this time it has withered. So starting with verse 20. Early in the morning, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they saw the fig tree withered from the root up. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look how the fig tree you cursed has dried up. And Jesus responded to them, have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and doesn't waver, but believes that what is said will really happen, it will happen. Therefore, I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it and it will be so for you. And whenever you stand up to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive your wrongdoings. Now, Peter is the first to make note that this is the same fig tree that Jesus previously cursed. And then we get Jesus teaching them about faith and prayer. Now, these seemingly random moments of hangry Jesus with the disciples and a poor bystander fig tree victim actually frame the temple cleansing as a metaphor. 
the reader is meant to see that the fig tree is the temple, lush and green, seemingly alive and thriving, and yet producing no fruit. This whole sequence is meant to highlight the issue of sterile religion, of misguided teachers. And there's an implication that the temple will meet a similar fate to this fig tree, as it no longer fulfills the purpose for which God intended it. The fig tree is a symbol for Israel, embodied in the temple and its leaders. Each appears to be thriving, neither is bearing the desired fruit, and both are condemned by Jesus. Now, while we have seen continued references and inferences to Jesus and authority throughout this chapter and really out throughout the whole gospel, we finally get the direct question in the final section of this chapter, beginning with verse 27. Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem again, back in, <laughs> as Jesus was walking around the temple. The chief priests, legal experts, and elders came to him, and they asked, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I have a question for you. <laughs> Give me an answer, then I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Was John's baptism of heavenly or human origin? Answer me. They argued among themselves. If we say it's of heavenly origin, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? but we can't say it's of earthly origin. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, because they all thought John was a prophet. And they answered Jesus, we don't know. And so Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Now there's the Jesus we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, a little snarky, little challenging, little rough. But this conflict is no surprise. We already heard in verse 18 that the chief priests and legal experts were going to try to find a way to destroy him. His actions in the temple give perfect opportunity for these religious leaders to question him. But this conflict has been set up since the very beginning. As we already quoted from chapter 1, verse 22, that he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. This statement is fleshed out fully in this encounter as we see him taking authority in the temple fully and clarifying that authority is not from these earthly places, not even the temple that he had been instructed or that had been instructed to be built by God. That temple was no longer being used the way it was intended. And it was time for somebody to call that out. And even though in this last section, Jesus is the one being questioned, he very easily turns the question back onto his challengers. And he puts them in a tricky situation. Do they affirm John the Baptist's baptism? And if so, then they're admitting that they aren't following God's prophet. Or do they deny it? And if so, they're risking an angry crowd who has already found itself astonished by Jesus. And so they say nothing. And so Jesus also says nothing. Somehow he starts with a grand entrance into the city and he still ends continuing to hold on to his messianic secret just a little bit longer. So the question then comes, <laughs> from where does Jesus' authority come? We, of course, know the answer. And yet, we also must recognize it's not because Jesus has told us the answer. It's because Jesus has shown us the answer. 
While this encounter with the religious leaders may seem like more of snarky Jesus just catching his challengers in their own web, it's also Jesus reminding us again and again of what following him looks like. We don't follow him because we assent to just hearing him say, my authority comes from God, and that settles it. (laughs) We follow him because of what we have seen throughout the gospel from the very first chapter, healings, baptism, feeding, calling of disciples, and especially what we know is still to come, his ultimate action, his sacrifice for us on the cross, his giving of himself even unto death dying so that we might live. And I'd say that's a pretty solid ground to have some authority, wouldn't you? Thank you for joining us again this week. I hope you take these stories with you into your week as you join with others to discuss your Lenten journey. And I look forward to sharing in worship with you this Sunday as we take these stories and consider what it means for how we lead our lives as disciples. See you next week.